Okay, well today we're going to start talking about the Gospel according to Matthew. And, um, you know, there's two different kinds of preaching or teaching that a teacher, a Christian teacher can engage in. One is topical preaching or teaching. So you pick a certain topic and you expound on a topic and you take all the scripture you can from all the scripture and bring it together to harmonize it and give you what the Bible teaches on a certain topic. Then there's something called expositional preaching or teaching. And that's when a preacher or a teacher goes through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, to expound what the original author meant to the original readers. And once you get the original meaning of the author to the original readers, then you apply it to yourself. It's really the safest way of teaching the Bible, or preaching the Bible, is to do it this way, because... What you're doing is you're not going, not the topical's bad or this wrong, but you're not going around and picking verses here and there and taking the chance of taking them out of context. So when you go through a letter of the Bible, you know, if I were to write a letter to you, you wouldn't just go to page 4 or page 5 or page 10 and pick out a sentence here and there. You'd read the letter all the way through. And once you've read it all the way through, then you can fully understand what I'm trying to say to you in every single sentence. But until you do that you're just kind of jumping back and forth. And see, each letter that's written in the Bible has an overall theme, an overall message it's trying to convey. And the safest way to understand what scriptures are saying is to go through it verse by verse. And I would even encourage you that if you're going to read a book of the Bible, read it through in one sitting. You know, especially the smaller ones. It's very easy to do. Don't just read a verse here and there every day or read a, even a chapter each day. Read the whole thing through. Now, in the bigger ones like Matthew or Romans or Luke, then maybe you can read half the way through one day or a third of the way through and then read it in two days or three days. But that's the best way to understand Scripture. What I'm going to be engaging in over the next probably year is going to be going through the book of Matthew verse by verse. Now, it'll probably take each chapter will probably take about two weeks. So you've got 28 chapters, 56 weeks, 52 weeks in a year. So we're talking about getting finished. You know, there's probably a break here and there. Probably around August next year. Okay? Uh, but what you'll see is when we go through this, the, the richness of what Matthew's actually saying. And the thing we understand the best of anything in the Bible is the gospel. And this is the gospel according to Matthew, who is one of the disciples of Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's talk about, let's first talk about inspiration. What is inspiration? How do the men who are the writers of scriptures, how do they remember all these things perfectly in order to, to write that, it all down as a gospel or a book of the Bible? How do they do it? Well, in John fourteen twenty six, the Lord promised that He would help them, to, He would help them to remember all things, He would teach them all things, the Holy Spirit would teach them all things, and remind them of all things Jesus had told them. That's Jesus' promise in John fourteen twenty six. And if that is true, then we're, some, some people will when they're criticizing the Bible, some people will say, well, well it's written by men. And they say, if it's written by men, it's, it's got to be fallible, because men wrote it. But the problem with that kind of conclusion, they're taking God out of the picture. And the fact is, in John 14, 26, Jesus made it very clear that the Holy Spirit would teach them all things and bring all things to remembrance. Now, can the Holy Spirit do that? The Holy Spirit's God. He knows all things. Can he bring things to remembrance of those who he's chosen to write down the scriptures? Of course he can. And this guarantees 
whether the author is making use of his memory, uh, making use of passed down oral traditions, or written accounts that are available to him before he wrote down his account, that whatever source he's, he's using, that the Holy Spirit is directing the accuracy of the Scripture. Let's turn to uh, 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3, and we'll start in verse 14. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy. And starting in verse 14, it says this, But you must continue in the things which you have heard, which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now we see the word inspiration here. And the Greek word simply means God breathed. God breathed. Now let me give you an ex- uh, analogy here to help you understand how the Scripture came about. If we have a uh, trumpet player, Trumpet player, he has an instrument called a trumpet. He's using his fingers up here. And he blows into the trumpet to make notes come out the other side. Now, who's the author of those notes? The trumpet player. He breathed into the trumpet. The notes come out the other side. But what is he using in order to create those notes? The trumpet. So, in the same sense, God used men. And we'll get to the second what kind of men they are here in a minute. God used men to breathe into them exactly what he wanted to be written down, what we call Scripture today. That's what inspiration is. It means God breathed. Just like a trumpet player is the author of the notes come out the other side. So God is the author of the words that we find in Scripture. There's also Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. And this is the Apostle Peter writing, uh, testifying to the accuracy and the trustworthiness of the words of Scripture. He says in verse 20, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For, for, private, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now there's three words I want to focus on here. The first word is interpretation. simply means origin or loosening. It did not come from private interpretation or private origin. It did not, the, the, scriptures, the scriptures didn't come from me. They didn't come from the person who's writing them down. The scriptures are coming from God. That's where they're coming from. Not from a person. And then there's this, this issue of what kind of men these were who wrote down the scriptures. They are holy men of God. And what does the word holy mean? Set apart? Yeah, that, that's good. It also means holy, pure, Consecrated unto God? Sanctified? Set apart means, of course, they're set apart to to live a a pure life, but also that God specifically chose each individual person with their personality, with their background, with their job. He chose them specifically to write down the Scriptures. And He chose them that way for a reason. And we'll see maybe in a a reason, maybe in a few minutes, maybe some practical reasons why God chose Matthew and his profession in life, and what he was doing, and, and guys like Luke, who was a physician. Kings, 
you know, fishermen. He chose these people to write down the Scriptures. And then also says, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, what does this word move means? The same word used to, to talk about a ship that was carried by the wind over a sea. Now, does a ship, can it determine wh- uh, where the wind's going to go? Can it, can it, obviously, it can, it can figure out which way the wind's blowing, which way it isn't. But it can't manufacture the wind. It can't determine that the wind's going to come from the north or the south. It can figure it out once it starts coming and maybe plan ahead of time. But it can't make it come from the south if it wants it to come from the south. It has to adjust. And so the same way, you see this word moved here, a wind, which is kind of like breath of God, it's blowing a ship along a sea the right direction it wants it to go. And the ship adjusts. So a man, when he's writing down Scripture, a holy man, he's carried about by the Holy Spirit. Writing down exactly what the Holy Spirit wants him to say. So what we're going to talk about today is, is an introduction. This is going to be an introduction to Matthew. Uh, we're not going to get much into the actual text of Matthew yet. But this is going to be an intro to Matthew. And I think it's very important to get these uh, introductory things out of the way that it will better help us understand uh, what Matthew is trying to say in the process. So, who was the author? Now, of course, we have the name Matthew uh, on, the, uh, on the front of the book. And there's, there's two evidences you're going to look at when you're trying to figure out who the author is of a certain book of the Bible. Uh, first is external evidence. Evidence outside of the book itself to figure out well, who's the author of this book. And external evidence strongly supports that, of course, the Apostle Matthew wrote the gospel that bears his name. Uh, many early church fathers, they are naming Matthew as the writer of this gospel. You have people like uh, Barnabas, not the one who is the, uh, the person who went around to travel with Paul, but a different Barnabas. Clement of Rome, one of the early bishops of Rome. Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna. Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexander, Tertullian, Origen, all citing that Matthew is the author of this gospel. That's some of the external evidence. Uh, on a side note, according to one book that I, I, I read, it's probably the most cited gospel among the early church fathers. They seem to like this gospel the most. Also, you know, you, you think that if, if someone were to write a gospel, you think it would have been like one of the most more and more important apostles who would write a gospel, right? Not someone like Matthew, who's barely ever talked about at all throughout the gospel. You think about it, Peter or... Or, uh, or maybe, well, you know, John wrote a gospel, but James or Andrew. You would think it would be one of them who would write the first gospel. But we see the fact that Matthew's name is on this is good evidence that he actually wrote it because when the Gnostics wrote a gospel in the, in the 200s and 300s and 400s, they would attach one of the more sensational names upon the, their gospels, their false gospels, like Peter or Mary Magdalene or Thomas, one of the more... Uh, influential or uh, more well-known apostle, they put their name on it. But the fact that this gospel has Matthew on it tells that no one's trying to, to fool us here because Matthew wasn't this popular apostle that Peter was or this sensational name like Mary Magdalene or, or Thomas. He was simply a tax collector who was barely talked about at all in the who Scriptures. Who Matthew writing this to? Uh, he was writing it to Jews. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he was writing to Jews. He was a Jewish person writing to Jewish people. And we'll see more about that here in a minute. Um, and then there's internal evidence. Of course, internal evidence also supports the fact that Matthew is the author of the, of the first gospel. His name is always attached to all the early manuscripts. 
of, the, of, of this book. Uh, in fact, this gospel includes three terms for coins which are found nowhere else in the New Testament. Three terms for, for coins that are found nowhere else in the New Testament. One is called the, uh, the double drachma. You see in Matthew 17.24. Uh, and New King James Version is translated as temple tax, which is what it was. But it's, in the Greek it's didrachmon, which is double drachma, which is the literal amount each person was to pay for the temple tax. The double drachma. So that's found nowhere else in the New Testament. So it tells you he, he you know, it's one of the tax factors is probably writing this. Uh, in Matthew 17, 27, uh, it translates piece of money or silver, but in the Greek it's, it's, it's stator, which means it's actually four drachmas. And this is when uh, Jesus told Peter, go get your, this, uh, this, this coin to pay both our temple taxes. And it's, it's actually four drachmas, which is the exact amount needed to pay two people's temple tax. That's mentioned nowhere else in the New Testament. And then, of course, he mentions talents in Matthew 18.24, which is mentioned nowhere else in the New Testament. So the internal evidence points to Matthew as some kind of tax collector, someone who knows a lot about coins, being the author of this gospel. It says, Matthew's occupation was tax collecting. He had an interest in coins and noted the cost of certain items. Uh, The profession of a tax collector would also mean that he had the ability to write and keep records. So, humanly speaking, this meant that Matthew had the ability to record and write down things with, uh, with accurateness and preciseness. His Christian humility also comes through in his writing of this gospel as well. Matthew continually refers to himself throughout his gospel as Matthew the tax collector. He continually refers to himself in this manner. But Mark and Luke do not continually use this term of contempt, tax collector, when they use his name. But Matthew does in his own gospel, which shows a a sign of humility throughout it. Also, when Matthew began to follow Jesus, he said, come follow me. And the Jesus went back to his house. And according to Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 9, 9-10, it says, they sat at a table, or they sat down with Jesus and the disciples. That's what it says. Very common terms, very uh, ambiguous about what they're doing. But when Luke records the same situation in Luke 5, 29, he says it was a great feast. So Matthew's almost like downplaying what was actually going on at his own house after Jesus said, follow me, and they went back to his house. He was saying it was just a sit-down. Just dinner. But Luke says it's a great feast. One translation says it's a great banquet. Other things that Matthew's gospel does not talk about, but the other gospels do, is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Matthew doesn't talk about that, but Luke does. More humility shining through. Uh, the story of Zacchaeus, a tax collector who restored fourfold what he had stolen, but he defrauded people, is not talked about in Matthew's gospel either. It's talked about in Luke's gospel. So you see more humility there. So in other words, he's being blameless in the writing of his gospel. So all the internal and external evidence points towards Matthew being the author of the first gospel. So let's, let's learn a little bit about the author. Of course, he was a tax collector, like we already said. He was a tax collector. He was also called Levi. So if you, if you look in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 and 29, which is the list, it's talking about the situation and what happened with, uh, with Matthew. And it doesn't call him Matthew, it calls him Levi. It's not a mistake, it's just his other name. Okay? Uh, Tracy has a name, we call him Tracy, we call him Brother Tracy, we call him Billy T sometimes. Uh, you know, so we all have different names. You know, my family, some of them call me Kerrigan, some of them call me Kerry. 
because I, I like Kerrigan better, uh, but I give them the liberty because they're my, they're my family members to call me that if they want to. Uh, different people have different names. So Matthew had another name called Levi. There's some things you must know about tax collectors, though, to realize why they were so hated by society at that point in time. Why they were so hated by them. Okay? You know, you will see Jesus saying things like this in Matthew 5.46. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do that thing? So he's basically saying, if you love people who love you, even the tax collectors do that. If Jesus is saying stuff like this, and, uh, and well, this is actually the Pharisees asking the disciples of Jesus this in Matthew 9.11. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So they're being named. They're not just a regular, general, normal sinner. They're a tax collector and sinner. So they're being named. In Matthew 18.17, you hear Jesus saying this, And if he refuses to hear them, talking about church discipline here, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So tax collectors are, are uh, this type of sinner. They're, they're supposed to be named, not just a general sinner. They're named alongside a heathen now. And then we have in Matthew 21.31, Jesus saying this, I surely I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Now the name among harlots or prostitutes. So, you know, are, are they really that bad? I mean, what, what is the deal here? Do, do they have to be named these times? Do they have to be named among sinners, not just be a general sinner like everybody else? Do they have to be named alongside of heathens and harlots? Well, from the perspective of the Jewish people whom Jesus was speaking to, tax collectors were that bad. I don't think Jesus thought they were that bad. But he's speaking to his audience, the Jews, and he's being relevant to his audience. But let me tell you why the Jewish people so hated the tax collectors. By the time Jesus was born, the Jews were under Roman control for about 60 years. The Romans had a hard and heavy tax system. They usually had two taxes. Okay, One was a tax that was comparable to the modern day income tax. Okay, The second tax was a land or property tax. So the question becomes now, how did they collect these taxes from their, the people in, in their kingdom? Well, they had these high Roman officials who would go to an auction and bid on a certain region or area to be able to tax and collect taxes from that area. And whoever had the highest bid won it for that area. Now these people themselves, these high-ranking Roman officials, would not uh, collect taxes for themselves. But the way they made money off this is the Roman government would say, you have to collect this much from this area for this time period. And whatever you collect above that amount is yours to keep. So you have, these, uh, you have the Roman government here. You have the government. And then you have these Roman officials below them. And they have to pay a certain amount to the government each period to pay for the area they're taxing. But then these people would hire tax collectors that were usually uh, natives of the region that they're collecting taxes in. And Matthew was one of these guys. He was one of these guys right here. So he's, he's collecting taxes right here for a Roman official and the same rules apply to him that apply to the Roman official. The Roman official would set a certain amount on that region and so you have to collect this amount. Whatever you collect above that amount is yours to keep. So these tax have this, this, this motivation 
to collect as much as they possibly could from people because the more they collected, the more money they had for themselves. And so you can see why uh, they were hated among the, the Jewish people. Uh, the more money they collected, the more they had for themselves. Uh, so as we've already seen, they were so hated among the Jewish people that they were considered sinners, harlots, and heathens, among them at least. And uh, we don't know what Matthew's character was in this area. If he collected a lot of money, or he was you know, collecting a fair amount. We have no idea. We don't know what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. But we do know, you know the story of Zacchaeus. And in Luke 19.8, he says that he would return fourfold whatever he took by false accusation, as the New King James translates, or by defraud or extortion. So it's basically stealing from people, is what the Bible called it. Zacchaeus called it that himself, and he's the one who did it. So he realized he was taking too much, and he was in return fourfold. So we don't know if Matthew did that, but that's one of the reasons why tax collectors were so hated. They really weren't, uh, they usually weren't very religious either. They were usually ostracized or kicked out of the synagogues or even the temple. Now, this wouldn't have been an official kicking out, like an expulsion, like the Catholic Church expels you from their, their, their church. Uh, but it was uh, informal, and they were not wanted there. And you, you, I mean, if, if you're treated like a, a, uh, a harlot or a heathen, uh, you probably have no desire to be there anyway. So this makes sense that when Jesus said to, to Matthew, follow me, it makes sense that he immediately rose and followed Jesus. Because in those days, you were unlikely to be, be accepted by a regular Jew, let alone a rabbi or a teacher like Jesus. So it made sense that when he said to, to Matthew, follow me, he's like, whoa, I'm going to jump up and follow him. It makes sense. It also isn't surprising that when Jesus said to Zacchaeus, come down from your tree, Zacchaeus. I'm going to eat at your house today. That Zacchaeus received him joyfully, according to Luke 19.6. Received him joyfully, and that he repented, and salvation came to his household on that very day. So, what happened to Matthew later on in life after the Gospels were written? Well, the book of Acts doesn't really mention him at all. Uh, but according to church tradition, when the countries were divided among the apostles by lots, Matthew drew Ethiopia. And he went down to Ethiopia, and God did, did great things through him. Not only through teaching the Word of God, but through miracles as well. And the king who was king over Ethiopia when Matthew first got there, favored Christians. In fact, he might have even been a Christian himself. But eventually, would you know it, that king died. Just like it happens to every king. And who came behind him? An unbelieving heathen king. And he didn't like Christians. So one Sunday, or uh, one, uh, one Lord's Day... Uh, Matthew was teaching, preaching in, in a local church there in Ethiopia. Uh, he was dragged outside, arrested, nailed to the ground with short spears, and he was beheaded. God has a wonderful plan for your life. It could be getting speared to the ground and beheaded. Isn't that pleasant? That's why it always bothers me when people say, God has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, he'll fix all your problems. He'll fix your God swing. You know, all these things. Such people seem to not understand the Bible. Peter says, he, or Paul said to Timothy, he who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And it would do us some good to read Fox's Book of Martyrs or to pick up a volume of Jesus Freaks, which talks about all these people who are martyred for the faith. 
to gird ourselves and prepare ourselves. I mean, we live in America, the land of the free, home of the brave, right? Um, maybe not. Maybe not so long. Either way, whether we see America's freedom taken away in our generation or ever taken away, we always need to prepare to, to uh, live and die for Jesus. Not just die for him. You know, dying for him happens in a moment of time. Usually. He's beheaded, he's spirit of God beheaded. That's the moment of time. We also need to live for him. Which is a daily, every day, taking up our cross, denying ourselves and following him. Which, in my opinion, is a little bit harder than just dying for him. We need to die daily. So he's right outside, nailed to the ground with short spears and beheaded. This is in A.D. 66. So, a little over 30 years after Jesus died, he was put to death himself. Now, the date. Now, we don't know exactly when the date... Matthew wrote the gospel according to Matthew. But we do know it must have been before AD 66, right? And it most likely was before he even went down to Ethiopia. Now, we don't know when he went down to Ethiopia, but uh, we know it was before then because he wrote it while he was still in the region. Uh, we know that it must have been written not just before AD 66, but before AD 70 because in AD 70, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. And Matthew, who's a Jew, writing to Jews, mentions nothing about this. There's no way a Jew would not mention that the Jews such an important thing as the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. He also references Jerusalem at the holy city several times in his gospel as if it's still around when he's writing it. Okay? Uh, there are some who would date Matthew's gospel as early as A.D. 37, which is about four years after Christ uh, died and rose from the grave. But there must have been some time that has elapsed since the resurrection until he wrote it. Because, let's just look at one example. Matthew 27, verses 7 through 8. This refers to, this is talking about the situation where Judas just gave the money back to the Pharisees. They didn't want it. He betrayed Jesus. And he wanted nothing to do with that money anymore. And the Pharisees buying a field they call the, the field of blood, what they call it. And... Um, it says in verses 7 and 8 that it was called the field of blood to this day. So the, the phrase to this day means some time has elapsed from the time it was bought and called the field of blood to the time that Matthew wrote it. Now, we don't know how much time elapsed, but surely there had to be at least 10 years or so. Because he, he's saying it, that it as if it's uh, distant memory. As if I would say, uh, well... The, at the White House, this is named this till this day, or, or something like that. It, it's something that's it's talking about something that's in the distant past, not too distant past, that people are forgetting about it. And Matthew twenty-eight fifteen is a story where it refers to the soldiers taking bribe money from the chief elders and from the chief priest for the, to get them to say that oh Jesus' body was stolen in the night by the disciples. So it's a bribe money to get them to say this from the chief elders and the priests. And it says at the end of verse 15 that this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Until this day. That they took bribe money from the chief elders and the priests. So it, it, these two phrases give a connotation of a passing of a certain period of time. But we don't know how much time there is. So I would say that it's probably should be dated around 50 to 60 A.D. Okay? And dating it at 50 to 60 A.D. would most likely make it the most early, the earliest written gospel there is. 
Even earlier than Mark. Even though Mark is, uh, is right in there around that same period of time. So 50 to 60 AD. So we're talking about, you know, not even 30 years passed between the resurrection and when Matthew wrote his gospel. In fact, the only two books in the New Testament that would have been written for sure before Matthew, besides possibly Mark, would be James and Galatians. James and Galatians. So what was the original language? Now, we've studied this quite a bit because we deal with uh, some people who are Yahweh only and they focus on the Hebrew language. There's been some people who would have you believe that Matthew was originally written in the Hebrew language, or at least Aramaic, which is similar to Hebrew. Um, the problem with this claim is no such manuscript evidence. We don't have one manuscript that has Matthew in Hebrew or Aramaic. Not one. Um, all the manuscripts we have of Matthew today in existence are written in Greek. But there are some early church fathers who mention Matthew writing in Hebrew. Uh, Papias, he was one of the early church fathers who possibly knew the Apostle John and heard him speak. If not, he was right after that. And he said this, he said, Matthew put together the oracles of the Lord in the Hebrew language and each one interpret them as best he could. So that's Papias saying. Now, now just because Papias said doesn't mean it's true. Uh, because obviously... If he wasn't around the same time as John, he didn't hear John speak, he's going by the word of somebody else. Because he wouldn't have been able to, to, to uh, verify it for himself. But he is a, he is a uh, I think he is a pretty credible source. But either way, it doesn't really matter if it was really written in Hebrew. Because right now, we have no manuscript of Matthew in Hebrew. What God has chosen to preserve throughout these last 2,000 years is the Greek. That's what we have. That's what God has chosen to preserve. Okay, so now we have, lastly, just a quick overview of what the message of Matthew is. Now, since he's writing to the Jews about a Jewish Messiah, he, uh, the main theme of his whole gospel is the kingship of Jesus. The Messiahship of Jesus. In fact, he focuses quite a bit on the Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in, fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, I don't have any official statistics or anything like that, but... I'll tell you this, that Matthew quotes more Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Jesus than anyone else I know. Because what is he trying to do? What is he trying to prove to the Jews? That Jesus is their Messiah. That Jesus is their King. That there's royalty involved here. Which is why he gives a genealogy. We'll get more into that next week. Uh, Matthew has the best sermon of all time. Ever recorded, in my opinion. Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount. You know, if, if Christians would just read and memorize and meditate upon and follow and obey the Sermon on the Mount, you'd have a lot less problems in this world. Unfortunately, most Christians will justify the pieces of the Sermon on the Mount. They'll twist them and they'll interpret them in light of, you know, modern day interpretation or the interpretation of Augustine or Calvin or, unfortunately. They go to the Bible with their, their assumptions, their bias, and try to fit their doctrine into the Bible instead of taking their doctrine from the Bible. And this is done quite often with Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount. He also has the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24-25. And this is talking about the end times. We just went through the book of Revelation. And some of Jesus' main teachings about the end times come from Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. Very important to understand that sermon of Jesus as well. It also has main themes. This is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. The conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his time. Jesus as the fulfiller of the law and the king who will return in the clouds. 
On a personal note, it's my favorite gospel. Now, that may seem like blasphemy to some to name a gospel as your favorite, but it is my favorite gospel. I like Matthew's writing style. I like the way he puts things forth. I like the Sermon on the Mount very much. And uh, I've read it more than any other. I've probably read it 150 times. I'm not exaggerating. That's probably how many times I've read it. And I've just read it through so many times, I just really, really like it. And um, I, I memorize more from this gospel than any other gospel. I quote it more in the open air when I'm preaching. Uh, I just really enjoy this gospel. Uh, but we'll dig more into that in the upcoming weeks and months. Uh, so generally speaking, like I was saying, we'll take about two messages uh, per chapter. And it'll probably take uh, you know a little over a year to get through the whole thing. But the, the good thing about this is that you'll, hopefully by the end, if you pay attention and listen, if I teach it clearly enough, uh, you'll understand the book of Matthew like you never had before. And we're done. Which is very important. Alright, so we'll end the introduction there. But do you guys have any questions about anything I've said so far? Or about anything else about the general idea of Matthew? The last, uh, the last part you just went through with the overview. Right. I missed uh, the one about the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, sure. Uh, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, uh, the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his time was a main theme throughout the, the gospel according to Matthew. Uh, Jesus as the fulfiller of the law is found throughout the gospel according to Matthew. And of course, Jesus will be the king who will return to clouds. And, uh, you know, another thing you'll see, this is like a sub-point of the conflict between Jesus and religious leaders, is that the Jews completely understood what the Messiah would be like. For some reason, maybe it was the writings of Talmud, I don't know. The Talmud is the writings of the... the in, the writings of the Pharisees and the religious leaders uh, outside of the Scripture, they interpret the Scripture themselves. and they, they, they seem to have added to the Word of God. And this is why Jesus says in Matthew, you, uh, you nullify the Word of God through your teachings, through your traditions. You nullify the commandments of God. Uh, but as a sub-point of this, uh, this conflict between Jesus and, and religious leaders, that they didn't understand who the Messiah was, what he was supposed to be like. They thought the Messiah was going to come to deliver them from the rule of the Romans. But they had a much greater enemy. Sin. Jesus came to deliver them from their sin. And uh, until they can get their focus off of this political situation for their country and being under the dominion of this country, they'll never enter the kingdom of God, which is not geographical, which is not local, which is within you. And if you're part of the kingdom of God, you live according to the kingdom principles found in the Bible. You're not fighting this war against the Romans and trying to free your geographical country or people from this rule. Because who does God have? God has people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That is a certain one nation and a certain uh, 12 tribes and a certain one language, the Hebrew language, but people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So that was a common theme throughout that they just misunderstood it. Even the disciples, after hearing Jesus for three years, sometimes still weren't getting things. Like about his death and, and burial and resurrection. You know, Simon Peter saying stuff like, Lord, you will not die. And what did you just say in response? Get behind me, Satan. Because Peter, still at the very end, the Last Supper, he still wasn't understanding it. He thought that, you know, and when James and John, his mother comes to Jesus and says, Can my son sit to your right and your left in your kingdom? She doesn't understand. 
think there's going to be some throne in actual physical Israel at that point in time. Now, there will be a throne later on. But they misunderstood the first coming of Christ. That they would have read Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and all the other messianic prophecies more clearly, they would have understood it better. Yeah? Uh, I, I find that a lot of uh, Christians uh, make the same mistake uh, thinking that uh, Christ's kingdom is of this world right. instead of, uh, of his kingdom, which is not of this world. Right. Uh, and they, they make the same mistake that say, well, uh, we're supposed to uh, go and establish his kingdom in this country, in the United States. Right. And they, they try to do really the same thing that the Jews were, were misunderstanding that you just explained. Right. And, uh, you, you know, you said it right when you said that you know, his kingdom is not uh, not in the world, but it's within us. Right. If, if we're within the kingdom of God, uh, we're going to uh, act as a citizen of the kingdom of God and follow the statutes and, and everything that's, that's part of that. Amen. Amen, that's true. And if you're not following and obeying the laws of the kingdom, you're kicked out. Right, you're severed as a branch. So, obedience is important, but uh, people unfortunately have gotten this idea, uh, which, in my opinion, started with Augustine. Obviously, it started before that with the Pharisees and the religious people who misunderstood Jesus' first coming. Uh, they think they're supposed to set up uh, a physical kingdom on earth before Christ comes back. But that's true. Why, why would Christ come back and destroy his enemies? We know enemies left. So, but it leads to things like, um, I don't know if we'll get into this or not during the teaching, but you know, if we study American history, people came over here and started, uh, they, they seemed to believe in some kind of replacement theology where they just were, they were, they were the new Israel and they're going to go out and slaughter everybody like the Jews when they came into Canaan. They slaughter everybody. We're going to slaughter everybody here, the Indians, and, and kill them, and we're going to have our own country for God. I mean, how, how do you take Old Testament laws that are for the Jewish nation and apply them to yourself and make them your own. I have, no, I have no idea why they would do that, but that's, that's a problem. And they would understand the kingdom of God better. And they wouldn't have the same misunderstanding that people did in, in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, they, those things probably wouldn't have happened. Who knows what would be of uh, come of America now. You, you mentioned uh, Boston's fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And uh, how many, did you say hundreds or? Oh, no, I didn't, I didn't say a number. I, I said I don't have any statistics for that. But just from my reading of Matthew and reading of the other Gospels, I know from experience that there's a lot more prophecies fulfilled in Matthew. There are the Gospels for good reason, because he's writing to Jews. And he wants to prove to them from their own scriptures, which is the only thing they had at that point in time, that he is the Messiah. And he's as Jewish as Jewish can be. 